Welcome to The Press Office with Kate and Co-PR, the podcast that gives you an exclusive and unfiltered look behind the scenes of the Australian media landscape and public relations industry. I'm your host, Marissa Jane, a publicist here at Kate & Co PR. And if you are dreaming of a career in public relations, are an aspiring journalist, or simply just obsessed with all things digital and traditional media, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome back to the press office with Kate & Co PR for the last episode for season one. Firstly, we really, really appreciate your support so far this season and we can't wait to come back bigger and better next season. Now, on to today's episode where I chat to Bianca O'Neill, a freelance journalist who writes for the likes of Rolling Stone, Fashion Journal, Broadsheet and Refinery29. We chat all about what it really is like as a freelance journalist advice for those wanting to pursue a career in journalism, and we dive into one of her passions, sustainability, especially within the fashion industry. Bianca shares some great words of wisdom throughout the episode, so I recommend getting a pen and paper out for some note-taking. Now, let's get on to the interview. Hi, Bianca. Thank you so much for joining me today in the press office with Kate and Co PR. It is such a pleasure to chat with you as always. And I know that there is a lot that we can all learn from you today. So before we get into it, do you mind introducing yourself, what you do and how you got to where you are today? Hi, everyone. I'm Bianca O'Neill. I'm a freelance journalist. I work mainly in fashion at the moment. I also write kind of culture opinion opinions for Rolling Stone magazine and uh, have written a few opinion articles here and there. I mainly write industry-based opinion for a fashion journal and also bits here and there for Broadsheet and Refinery29 at the moment. Very busy. I can only imagine what your life is like, but do you mind describing what does a typical day look like for you as a journalist for a number of publications? Is every day a little bit different or do you have a set schedule? I heavily subscribe to the uh, pack on all of the deadlines and then freak out and do everything last minute kind of um, writer code, which I'm sure any other writers out there would definitely understand. (laughs) As a freelancer, sometimes you can plan things ahead of time and schedule your workflow really beautifully, but then you'll be offered five or six articles at the last minute that are due right now and everyone needs everything straight away. And then at the same time, someone will bring forward a deadline and So then no matter how much you try um, to have your workflow looking nice and clean, uh, everything inevitably gets pummeled into one day and then you kind of freak out for a couple of days and then you just have to kind of swallow it and get going. (laughs) In terms of like a day-to-day, I don't really have one. You know, I used to be an editor for a really long time at different publications. I used to work in record companies. So I definitely understand the corporate life. But as a freelancer, it's really just about, uh, you know, pitching, chasing work with clients and then lots of alone time, really. Lots of transcribing, lots of interviewing, 
Um, with Broadsheet, I do a lot of in-person stuff. So I'm out looking at new store openings or chatting to um, retail owners and uh, events, uh, meetings, not as many meetings as when you're in a uh, corporate environment though, which is good. And juggling all of that with a toddler. So kind of on and off there with the workflow. Yeah, I would imagine there's a lot of self-motivation you need to be able to freelance. I think if you're thinking of freelancing, whatever kind of job you're doing, you have to just really love it. If you don't, then the motivation's going to kill you. You have to like what you're doing and want to go into your office or if you're not working in an office, you know, go into your bedroom every day and just dedicate yourself to it. I mean, a lot of freelancing as a journalist is proactive pitching. So, you know, you it's, it's not hard to find the motivation because the things that you pitch, you're already passionate about anyway, and you want to write about and you want to look into and you want to dive into and you want to chat to people about. So uh, it's, I actually find the motivation less onerous than in a corporate job where you're given a corporate journalism job, I guess, um, where you're given a lot of stories that maybe you're not that interested in. Or as an editor, where you're not really writing much, you're just editing other people's work. That kind of stuff can become hard to self-motivate with. Whereas when you're working on articles that you're pitching yourself and you're already kind of passionate about, it's not really that hard. Otherwise, you might need to find a new career. <laughs> Definitely. And I, you've already kind of touched on it. Would you say the, the main benefit of being a freelance journalist is the fact that you do get to write about your passions and you do kind of get to dictate what you are writing about? Yeah, look, journalism's really funny. It's like a convoluted career path. If you are a passionate writer, um, you kind of follow the traditional career path and find yourself in an editor chair, editor's chair. And um, a lot of editor's chairs don't involve that much writing just because you don't have enough time to do it most of the time. You're, you're commissioning, you're editing, you're making sure that the content strategy is tight and all of that kind of stuff. So sometimes um, if you're really passionate about writing, you find yourself in like, I guess, a senior position, you would call it, and you're actually not doing the thing that makes you happy. So yeah, quite a few years ago now, I just decided that I wanted to take a bit of a break. I've freelanced on and off in between um, full-time jobs, but I think just my personality suits it better. I like my day to look different all the time. I like to kind of the way that I work when I write is that I procrastinate 95% of the time and write 5% of the time. And sometimes bosses don't really understand that. Mm. So, you know, being a freelancer means that you don't have to feel that pressure to be sitting at your desk and trying to push out something that doesn't feel right or doesn't work. And it also means I can write at any time of the day or night. So for me, freelancing is really about flexibility a lot of the reason why I went into freelancing was because I knew I wanted to start a family and it just gave me that flexibility that if I have to, I can stay at home with my kid if, you know, he's sick or I can have a day or two a week with him and just have mum time and, yeah, not feel the pressure to kind of work 
five days a week, nine to five constantly. You know, if if I want to kind of scale back for a couple of weeks, I can. If I want to go hard for a couple of weeks, I can. So yeah, it's just a lot of, it's a lot more control over how your day-to-day looks, how your month looks and your workflow. That's really interesting. And it, it reminds me of this concept, like a lot of corporate companies, the bigger companies, they're trying to shift away from the nine to five of their jobs because a lot of people that's not their peak like productivity window so some people are like night hours and they do work better then so I guess freelance kind of falls into that category yeah I mean obviously you can't interview people at um 1am but (laughs) but a lot of what I do is just solo work so um it just means that I can do it whenever I mean I used to be a real night owl because I worked in music so I was used to getting in at midday and (laughs) kind of rocking up hungover and then like working and then going out to gigs and stuff till whatever hour of the night. And then when you have a baby, suddenly um, all of that changes and you go to bed at 9 p.m. because you're tired. So you're so tired (laughs) and you wake up at 5.30 because that's when they wake up. And then um, lately I've been shocking myself with um, finding really productive time in the mornings, which I usually would be like horrible for hours. I would just answer emails till about midday before I could really get going. So it's interesting as well, because, you know, as your life changes, you can change with it and you have that flexibility. I love that. I love that concept. And I guess for any Uh, young or aspiring journalists who are listening to the show, do you have any advice on how they can pitch articles into publications? Yeah, like when I was an editor, I mean, every editor is different. So it's it's hard to generalize. But I think mainly it's the first thing you've got to do is be like have a voracious appetite for media yourself. You need to know what other people are writing um, what they're writing about, what angles they're using, why you clicked on certain articles and you didn't click on other articles. And as you read more and more and more, you start to see patterns, I suppose, which allows you to be a bit more nimble and pitch things that the editor hasn't already been pitched 500 times because the thing is like no editor wants to run a story that like their competitors already ran two weeks ago and you know I used to receive pitches and I was like our biggest competitor just run ran this last week why would we run the exact same story it's already been written so it's really just about finding uh unique angles and just interesting topics that no one's really discussed yet I think I think as well finding your passion finding your niche um, there might be an area that you just personally are interested in and you just know a bit more about than other people because you read a lot about it or because you know a lot of people in the in the industry or something so finding that niche allows you as well to become a bit of an expert in it and then that allows you to be approached by other people who then you don't have to pitch. Then you have people approaching you and saying, hey, do you want to write an article about this? We think you'd be really good for that topic. So, yeah, I think it's it's mainly just reading a lot. My biggest bugbear with young journalists is that I, I feel like I get articles, I used to get articles sent to me and they just didn't read well. Mm. And 
I I was never quite sure as to whether maybe they they didn't um, read a lot of journalism, so they weren't aware of the structure behind it. I think a lot of people think that um, anyone can write, like everyone writes every day, right? Well, how hard is it? But that's like not actually true. There's a lot of like um, a lot of understanding behind how you structure a story depending on what kind of story it is, how you how you tell the story of what you're trying to get across and doing that in a meaningful but also a, a way that makes sense, you know, like sitting down and, and reading through what you've written quite a few times, not just once and not just for spelling. Look at the structure and go like, oh, wait a second, I've written over here that, you know, something from 1995 about their history and then I've gone into modern day and then I've gone back to 2001. That's not really helpful for the reader. The reader needs to be taken on a journey and and every paragraph needs to link to the paragraph after. There needs to be a connection between a thread running through that story. So, yeah, I think young journalists probably need to um, spend a bit more time on the craft and a bit less time on, um, you know, I guess pitching randomly all over the place. (laughs) And, you know, I used to have a blog for a really long time and then I changed that blog. And, um, you know, having a blog, it just gives you a bit of experience and um, helps you practice your writing and helps you see like what people click on, what people don't. So you get a bit of that, you know, background information that you probably wouldn't have gotten. Internships are great, but if you're doing that for free anyway, why not just start your own blog? You never know what might happen. And um, Medium these days, you know, it's pretty much free to join and um, it ranks really well on Google. So, and you get paid if your story goes viral. So Medium's a great space for young journalists to practice their writing. And if it gets attention, you never know, you might have someone approach you, an editor approach you and ask you to do a follow-up story. But it's also a professional setting for you to send links when you're proactively pitching to new editors. Wow, thank you for that. That is so insightful. And I would love to know, as your career as a freelancer have you had any career highlights you know it's funny like people ask me about like lots of stuff particularly in my music career because music's like linked to famous people right so everyone loves to know about all of the famous people that you've interviewed or you've met or whatever but I don't know I don't really think of things I don't I'm not a big person who like looks back on stuff to be honest (laughs) um a, a big like tick box for me was that I always 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 wanted to write for Rolling Stone like my whole career and I pitched to them for years and years and years and years and um I got very lucky because I and I want to point out like a lot of journalism is who you know so you know one of the best things you can do for your career if you're a freelancer is network and meet people and if you meet an editor say hey I'm a freelance journalist here's my card have a business card that's got all your like socials on it or your medium link or your blog link or whatever and say you know do you mind if I email you do you mind if I pitch stories to you what kind of stories are you looking for what kind of gaps do you have in your writer arsenal 
all of that kind of stuff. So I guess just want to like put a bit of a like precursor to the fact that I finally got my first story in Rolling Stone in the middle of the pandemic last year, which was like, yeah, a very long and arduous process. <laughs> However, the reason I did is because one of my old writers was now the managing editor. So, you know, how you keep up your connections and how you treat people you know, I used to be her boss. So if I was an asshole, she's not going to give me an article in Rolling Stone, right? So regardless of whether people are above or below you, regardless of if you're freelancing or working in a corporate job, media is all connections. And you would know that you're a PR. So um, yeah, just don't be a dick and maybe things will happen eventually. (laughs) That is such great advice. And it's so true. You never know who the person next to you is going to be in their next life. Like they may be your boss. So always treat everyone kindly, of course. And also have humility. Like I'm so proud of her. She has absolutely killed it. Uh, Poppy Reed. She has led that brag team through some amazing innovations and, um, you know, I have absolutely no problem with her being my boss because she's awesome. So it's also about humility. And as you get older, that stuff's going to happen. People are going to, you know, leapfrog you. People are going to get the job that you wish you had. I mean, that would be my dream job. I always tell her all the time. I'm like, oh, my God, you've got my dream job. You're managing editor at Rolling Stone. Holy shit. Like, that's so amazing. But to be honest, it's just amazing to see a woman in the role after having pitched to guys for many many years and not even getting a response so I think it's awesome to see that happening. That's such a nice little story and I guess in terms of you how do you best work with PRs and do you have any specific tips for publicists who are pitching to freelancers? I have a bit of a fraught relationship with PRs. Uh, (laughs) I think as a freelancer sometimes it can be a bit confusing Um, because I do work for different mastheads. I think my biggest bugbear is being pitched something that I don't write about or that I wouldn't ever write about and then being chased several times, sometimes with a bit of an overtone of like, well, why aren't you answering me? So if there are any PRs listening, I would say, first of all, if you're going to write a personalized email, not just a BCC press release, if you're going to write a personalized email, actually spend five seconds to pop onto that person's profile and see what kind of articles they've written before. MediaNet is not accurate. It's old, it's rarely updated, it's generic. And, you know, so people see broadsheet and they think I'm a food writer. And, you know, it's, it's important that... If, particularly if you're going to chase that person, <laughs> before you chase that person, don't assume that they haven't seen your email or that they're ignoring you. Perhaps your pitch just wasn't relevant. And yeah, so that that kind of is my biggest like, and then I write back, this isn't the kind of article I write, you know? <laughs> Secondly, I think, yeah, look, we've all, we all know badly behaved journalists and influencers but don't assume that everyone is like that I think I guess there are people who've had bad PRs who've had bad experiences 
And um, yeah, I would just say like, don't treat everyone with the same brush kind of thing. Um, Not all of us are trying to get in the front row. Not all of us, you know, are trying to be dicks about things. Not all of us are trying to get like five friends on the guest list. Like, so yeah, like try and see everything as a blank slate and also, you know, go off people's history. So, um, you know, if, if someone's not, if someone's always shown that they're really, friendly and amenable try to like maybe encourage them in that (laughs) uh and don't burn your bridges because there are some prs who have created a rod for their own back in my history and then a couple of years later have started pitching to me again after you know banning me from events or something and unfortunately journalists have really long memories and uh they won't cover your stuff again (laughs) so you know I think it's really as simple as if there's a misunderstanding give that person a call you know send that person an email and say you know do you want to catch up for a coffee and try and kind of just smooth it over. Hopefully you can kind of repair the relationship, explain where you're coming from. They can explain where they're coming from and you can move on from it rather than just eternally damage that relationship forever and then find that they're never going to cover anything from you again. That is all great pieces of advice. And I really uh, love that second piece about making sure that you treat everyone differently into how that relationship has kind of evolved. I feel like there's always been times that say like if a publicist has been burnt by like one journalist, then they come into all the other relationships a little bit timid and you know there's kind of no need for that Uh, and I guess from your end for say a really young publicist who's just coming into say a PR agency how would you suggest that they start to build these relationships with journalists? Uh, Look I think I don't really it doesn't really occur to me whether someone's like junior or senior or anything or new or old so uh, I think probably the best thing you can do is just, um, you know, see if they've got time for a coffee, introduce yourself in person. That's always nice to do. It takes like 20 minutes to have a quick coffee, explain the kind of stuff you're covering, see what kind of stuff they cover. And most of the time through that discussion, the two of you can not only build a bit of a rapport, that's not just an email, a faceless email that comes into your inbox, but it gives you some starter points and also it helps you understand exactly how that journalist works and, you know, asking questions like, you know, how do you like to be pitched to? Um, Do you have deadlines like where you need something three months out? So there's no point in me pitching something that's last minute or do you mainly work online or do you work in print? Um, Do you write opinion pieces or do you write gift guides? Like, all of that information will help. And uh, I think just doing that in person is always nice as well. Um, But then don't be offended if the journalist is like, I'm sorry, I'm really busy. Maybe try, you know, a couple of weeks later and chase up and say, hey, I was wondering if your workload's eased off. Um, You know, maybe we can grab a coffee now. So, you know, even a Zoom call, to be honest, I just think that conversation is much more useful than just another email in the inbox because the thing is you would be shocked at the emails that we get, the volume of emails that we get. And 
it can just, for a lot of people, it can become overwhelming. I'm like super organized, but I've worked with many journalists and I know that generally they're useless with emails. <laughs> and it's, it's not usually personal and it's not usually because they're ignoring you and it's not usually because they're trying to be a dick. Most of the time, they're just like so overwhelmed by their inbox. They just don't even know where to start and they haven't seen things and, you know... So, I mean, I get that even myself with editors I'm working with. So it's not just PRs who have the issue. Sometimes I'm trying to give them an article that they've requested from me and I don't hear anything back. So, <laughs> you know. I can only imagine how full your inbox is. It would be wild at times. But um, I think the face-to-face time is really, really valuable as well because I think as soon as someone puts a face to the name too, I feel like you get responses, you get really honest feedback too once you have that relationship too. Like, you know, sometimes it's great just having a call with a journalist that you have a relationship with and they're like, we wouldn't cover this client. Like it doesn't really work for the brand. And you're like, okay, well, I'm not going to pitch to you anymore, obviously. Yeah, totally. And look, you know, most journalists that I've worked with and myself, we want to help, but, you know, there's only so much you can do. And, mm. you know, you've got to also protect your own brand as well as, you know, help out other people. So, um, yeah, sometimes it's just, it's not, again, it's not personal. It's just sometimes how it is. <laughs> yes, definitely. And I guess that leads me very nicely into my next line of questioning, which is all around how we were chatting about as a freelancer, you do get to write about things you're passionate about. And one thing that you're really passionate about is about sustainability, uh, especially in terms of fashion, which is a great topic that needs lots of airtime in our opinion here at Kate & Co PR. So I guess, firstly, what does the term sustainable fashion mean to you? I think like, I, I would like, I would pop a caveat in because I am, yes, I am passionate about um, sustainability and ethics and the environment and all of that kind of stuff. But to be honest with you, I'm like, it's, it's more about just the bigger picture. And it's more about... Um, you know, I, I'm more so passionate about the future. And I've always been like that as a journalist, whether it was music, whether it was food, whether it was fashion, whether it was travel, like whatever I was doing, I just always wanted to know what was next. And I think that's probably been like the one thread that's bound my writing through all of these different genres and, and styles and, and mastheads and everything is that I have this like hunger for knowing, you know, what's next? Where where do we go from here? What's how do we improve whatever industry we're in? How do we move into the future? And obviously, sustainable practices and ethical practices are not only the right thing to do, they also make sense in terms of keeping the fashion industry going it's just not like I mean the term sustainable means can be sustained over a long period of time and the way that um, fashion has gone in the last five to ten years is is not sustainable 
not in terms of the green way, just in terms of the pure meaning of the word, <laughs> sustainable. We can't sustain this level of output. We can't sustain this level of waste. There's just nowhere to put it all. There's nowhere to, you know, we're just going to be overwhelmed by clothing and we're not going to know what to do with it. And the majority of it is made from non-biodegradable materials. What happens then? You know, um, at uni, I actually did a chemical engineering degree and I specialized in environment and energy. And a lot of the focus of that was cradle to grave impact, i.e. from the second that something starts to the second it disappears like it no longer exists anymore and there are a lot of clothes there's a lot of clothing being made that literally can't get to the grave bit like it's gonna be around for thousands of years literally so if we keep adding to that pile what happens are we going to live on top of mountains of clothes we can't do that you know in africa we're seeing people being sent charity uh clothing and it's not usable and it, they're unable to do anything with it. And it's just basically becoming piles of rubbish that is overtaking communities and housing estates and, and all of these, um, you know, areas that are becoming tips, <laughs> dumping grounds for the West's rejected fast fashion. So I think I'm more passionate about solutions and um, how we genuinely move forward and I guess that that's you know you you also mentioned you wanted to chat about greenwashing I think that that's really what greenwashing is about it's about are you genuinely making steps towards solving a problem or are you creating a nice marketing story that your PR can get a headline in an article from and to be honest with me like I'm not really a fan of saying, oh, this particular brand is more sustainable and more ethical than this particular brand. Because for me, it's not really about that. It's about the intention. And you can, if, if your intention is to do things so that you can look good, that's greenwashing. No matter how far you go, if that's your intention, if that's your driver, that's a problem. But if your intention is a genuine solution, but you're only able to make small steps, I'm much more likely to support you. So yeah, that's just like, I guess, a little bit of my thoughts on sustainability and ethical consumption. No, that was great. And thanks for sharing that. I think that that, that is such an interesting take. And I feel like I've just learned so much listening to you. And I think greenwashing too is something that we need to be really conscious as um, as marketers and PRs as well, because every brand wants to be sustainable and be seen as sustainable now. Are they truly sustainable? Is sending out press packages every week sustainable? You know, there's all these questions that we do have to ask ourselves as an industry also. I think as well, you know, PRs and marketing people and brands need to understand that it's not a headline anymore. Mm. The headline is if you're not sustainable or not ethical you know the amount of emails I get about like this new sustainable brand and, and if you're not telling me the actual story if you're just saying they're sustainable that doesn't mean anything to me because there's no regulation around the use of sustainable 
So, you know, any brand can stand up and go, oh, I'm a sustainable brand. Like, what does that even mean? And, you know, one of the conversations I've had a lot recently with labels and um, sustainability advocates is this idea that we should probably be looking at the word sustainable as an end goal, not a current state of being. Because, you know, if you get a brand that goes, oh, we're a sustainable brand or we're 100% ethical, it's like, well, shit, you've solved it. Congratulations. Can you tell the rest of us all how to be 100% sustainable? Because no one else seems to have figured that out. Like, it's just not true, right? It's, it's not an accurate depiction of whatever they're doing. So uh, people need to be a bit more honest, I think, around using that particular word. And I think not be scared of being criticised if they haven't done everything yet. People just want to hear that you care and that you're trying and, you know, tell them what you're doing. You can't do it all. I mean, everyone wishes they could do it all. But, you know, you've got so many paradoxes within that sustainability umbrella. One being, do you go down the vegan leather route because you're trying to be animal friendly? Or do you say, oh, wait a second, leather is, you know, better, like uh, more biodegradable as a post-product than plastic. You know, there's so many of those paradoxes where you're kind of like, "Ah, I don't know the answer to this. And no one really knows the answer to it yet. So saying that you're 100% sustainable or 100% environmentally friendly is just not realistic because at some point in your supply chain or in your materials like provisions, you know, only 29% of raw materials are made in Australia. So, you know, half of these brands saying that they're sustainable are sourcing things from overseas. They're using huge air freight and transport costs to get them here. They don't, most of them haven't been to their materials makers and actually seen exactly what those people do so yeah I I think it's just a bit of a huge mammoth topic that is kind of bandied about very casually and I think we need to be a lot more careful about doing that if we're going to truly pursue sustainability within fashion. Definitely. And yeah, it's so interesting to think that anyone can use the word sustainable. It There is no sort of restraints on it or regulations. I, I wonder if that will ever kind of come into play as can it be false advertising? But then it's like, what does that word actually mean? It, it is a really interesting concept. I mean, it's something that I've again spoken to a lot of people about um hopefully government regulation will catch up you know um one of the things i mentioned in a recent article is that you can't say australian made unless you get a particular accreditation but you can say sustainably made so you know it's about the government i suppose catching up or industry bodies catching up and doing that work but the thing is there's just so little transparency in the supply chain that even labels with the best intentions find it difficult to track every single aspect of what they do. Um, You know, Outland Denim are 
incredible with their transparency. But even James, the CEO, admits he isn't able to track down every single like second that his products are in the hands of people, despite years of <laughs> trying to establish things. So the solution probably needs to be in modern technology. And one of the things that I have advocated for is the development of some kind of blockchain tracing because it's unable to be adjusted for one. For two, it doesn't put the onus on the end user, i.e. the label. Um, it puts the onus on every single person within that creation chain. Um, and it allows for the person to, you know, the, the consumer to perhaps just scan a QR code and then another QR code of two items that they're in the store with and directly compare them straight up, you know. And within that, there's so much technological opportunity where you can use calcu like automatic calculators, which could tell you based on the blockchain tracing how much pollution it's absorbed, you know, used up to get to where you are, um, whether people have been paid ethically or not, whether certain dyes were used that aren't good for the environment. And all that stuff can happen automatically with computers. So I think, you know, fashion isn't great with technology generally. It's a, it's a maker environment. It's, you know, it's proud of its um, historical roots and its, you know, hands-on approach. But I do think that there are so many opportunities in pursuing that sustainable angle through technology. I think that is very, very interesting. You have me wanting to research all of these potential solutions. We are getting near the end of our chat. And one thing I would love to ask you too is where do you see the evolving media industry heading in the near future? Do you see it digitizing even more than it already has? Or, or where do you see it going? This is like such a huge question that we could probably talk about for like an hour. It's interesting. For so long, I was like, print is dead, print is dead. Like, what's the point? Everyone get into video, everyone get into online, everyone get into digital, social. Uh, but now I'm not so sure. <laughs> I think the future of media is in probably uh, people following journalists as opposed to um, media mastheads anymore. I think people are realising that, you know, these editors at the big newspapers or magazines have a lot of power and you're getting a really monocultural perspective of things. And we're seeing much more, I think, of the rise of, um, you know, Patreon, Medium, um, and people following journalists that they enjoy the writing of on social media. So, yeah, I'd I mean, I'd like to see that. I, I think, you know, a lot of people probably don't consider journalists to be artists as such, but um, they're certainly creatives. And I think that um, with so many journalists being laid off constantly and, and many of us left to be freelancers through no choice of our own, <laughs> whether we like it or not, um, 
yeah, I, I do see the future of journalism being much more freelancer heavy um, and perhaps people pursuing their own uh, platforms to publish on. I mean, maybe it's influencer style journalism I mean there are problems in that I think you know legally you don't have the protections that you do if you're published in a masthead um you can have you know if people aren't up on their legal background you can have defamation issues you can have privacy issues so there's a lot of things to kind of work out there um and then in terms of like the big papers and stuff like that I don't know. It's interesting. I've, I I think it's interesting that people have accepted paying for Netflix and Binge and um, Stan and Hiu and Ko and and maybe they'll have a Spotify and they'll have like a title account, but they won't pay for journalism. Mm. It's a thing. It, it, and I, I've never really understood why. There's definitely, um, particularly for young people, I think, um, most subscribers tend to be older people. They tend to require, they tend to want the print as well, the print bundle with the online, or their corporates who have the free subscriptions through work. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think it's interesting to see, to maybe have a look at where a subscription is going because, yeah, young people aren't so great at supporting journalism in that way. And I wonder if it's because a lot of these mastheads don't really speak to them in the same way as they're looking for. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I guess that's why I think that there is a potential for the, like, Patreon-style, medium-style, um, f- you know, freelance journalist who's self-funded through their own journalism. Because it's like you, you're going to follow a – you're more likely to follow a writer, right, these days. I think people just want things to be curated. And if they like what someone does, they'll – be happier I think paying for something that they know is always going to be interesting to them rather than paying for everything from the New York Times 95% of what is not interesting to them so yeah it's interesting to me because there's a missing link there why people will pay for premium content in other arenas but not in journalism I've never heard that take before on where the media industry is heading but to me it makes total sense I follow so many journalists and not just because they're the people I work with and I'm pitching to it's because they're they're not even the people I'm pitching to they're people that I enjoy reading their stuff and if I'm on fashion journal or refinery 29 and I see a piece and it resonates with me I immediately go and look up the journalist and I'm like oh she's really cool she's kind of my age we're similar people because I've read one article. So I follow them and follow kind of what they're doing. So I think that is really true. And and I do see that kind of becoming more predominant. People follow journalists around. And then exactly what you said too around, you know, young people aren't paying for subscribing to media. But 
they are subscribing to everything else on the internet. So it would be interesting to see the likes of, say, like a Refinery29 that they're target market is that younger generation they have such a cult following for them to see what like a paid kind of service would do because the likes of most of the paid subscription services at the moment are like you know the Herald Sun Daily Telegraph who do kind of target a much older market yeah and I think the there's like a few different reasons for that um advertisers tend to be heavily focused on the youth market which means that it's easier for someone like a refinery to self-fund and provide freemium content they call it um whereas the bigger newspapers have such a broad demographic and a mostly older demographic that their advertiser pool is probably um less diverse and and less moneyed i would say um and less likely to move into that kind of digital environment as well. Like your Harvey Normans, you know, they want to put a big ad on the front page of the physical paper. Do you know what I mean? They're not, they're not yeah. going to go to like news.com.au and be like, let's do some TikTok campaign. They're just not going to do that because then that's not who they're focusing on. So, you know, the younger demographic um, media conglomerates like your pedestrian, like your brag, like all of those kind of people, first media, they're able to diversify their ad content in a way that allows them to support um, their model in so many different ways rather than just a banner ad or <laughs> something like that. Because a young demographic you know it is more accepting of something that's on their social media that's maybe a little bit like branded content as opposed to a classic ad so there's that <laughs> I think as well a lot of younger focused media websites just know that young people wouldn't pay for a premium website yeah I mean they've done their research they've you know, they've gone, they've looked at everything. And I just, broadsheet tends to, you know, um, focus on releasing their publishing. So they'll do like their cookbooks or they'll do their like photography books or whatever. Um, A lot of places will do merch. So there's other ways that they can create branded money opportunities um, beyond kind of creating a a paywall. But yes, I agree with you. It would be interesting to see what happened if Refinery decided to put up a paywall. (laughs) Mm, It it really would. But yeah, there's lots of food for thought there. So thank you. You've left me with so many questions and lots to research for the rest of the day. And before we wrap up, I like to ask all of my guests a series of quick fire questions of how they best work with PRs. Are you ready? I think so. I'm not very good at pre-reading these questions, so I'll have to just answer them on the fly. That's fine. They're, they're simple. They're quick and easy. So email or phone call? Email, definitely. I'm a millennial cusp. I mean, I'm almost a Gen Xer, but I still prefer email. I think anyone under the age of 40 is like sees a unknown phone number and is just like reject (laughs) I know right digital or traditional media my entire career has been in digital I accidentally fell into it 
in the early 2000s because I was the only kid who could code at the time. And somehow my entire career got built around digital media. So I have to say digital media, otherwise I probably wouldn't have a job. Fair enough. Instagram, Facebook or TikTok? Uh, this this is just betraying of my age group. It has to be Instagram. I feel like if you're X or Boomer, you're Facebook. If you're Millennial, you're Instagram. And if you're X, uh, Gen Z, you're TikTok, right? Yeah, exactly. It is very telling. And then last question, press release, personalized pitch or both? Uh, <clears throat> press release, if it's... Uh, something you just want to inform me about and keep me updated on uh, because I'll feel less guilty just ignoring it (laughs) (laughs) and personalized only if you know that if you've done your research on what I actually write and you know that it is something that I would genuinely write about don't don't waste your time if like writing me a personalized <laughs> email just shoot me a press release and if i'm interested i will respond to it. it you know whether it's personalized or not personalized to be honest i don't discriminate you know i've i've gone back to really generic press releases and you know written an entire op-ed on it and i've like ignored many a personalized email so I think if the story's there the story's there it doesn't really matter great answer and that is the end of all of my questions so thank you so much for joining me today I really really appreciate it and I feel like everyone listening along will have a lot to learn which is exactly what we want so thank you yes and feel free to dm me with your disagreements and agreements um I love a good dm chat so i i that that is probably the one place i do answer every single person on is tm so there you go there you go prs if you want to sneaky your way into an actual response probably dm me on instagram is the best way you will be having so many dm slides now thank you no worries Thank you for listening to The Press Office with Kate and Co PR. Please subscribe, rate and review via your favourite podcast app and please give us a follow, like and share on Instagram at Kate Co PR.